My Year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 21. I deleted the apps. There had been so much time wasted in checking, talking, sending, arranging, comparing, flattering, seducing, thanking, confirming, denying, clarifying, pursuing, rejecting and accepting. At first it had been delightful and surprising when the whole babble and flummery had been novel. Ah, happy days. The idea that men might find me attractive and want to meet and talk and have sex with me was irresistible. But of course the temptations had been too seductive. I'd done things with guys I hardly fancied at all, stuck my tongue and my dick in bums I didn't fancy, kissed mouths I wished I hadn't, sucked cocks I'd rather not have. There had been too many evenings that had been less, what a fuck, and more, what the fuck. I wanted my days back. In the context of my spending so much time with frivolous activity, came the shocking news that someone very close to me had the diagnosis of a neurological condition that might change her life drastically and affect her ability to act independently. Live life while you can, I reminded myself. Too soon will come the realisation that it's too late. In some ways it already is. Deciding what are the most urgent things to do and to be is impossible. It changes. But how about keep talking and listening, keep writing, keep trying, keep breathing, keep moving and stretching, keep hoping and keep forgiving. But my physical health was still suffering and tests were ongoing. Liquid diarrhoea is never a good sign. But thank God for the GP who introduced me to the Bristol stool chart. No more would I have to search for the appropriate culinary equivalent to describe a consistency, half-melted coffee ice cream, or twiglets after an hour in the sun, nor the embarrassment of misunderstanding an inquiry about my movements and saying, just to and from work, but cycling is really uncomfortable. But once she had shown me the chart with its unambiguous images graded from one to seven, I could confidently tell her the correct level. Seven. Watery, nothing solid. My answer was always seven. I could only dream of a five. Soft blob. Let alone a two. Smooth sausage. She was one of several medics who insisted, well, asked, but it would have felt churlish to refuse, on taking a good old gander at my butthole and poking something in there. Was it a finger or some kind of instrument? I had no idea. To one, a handsome young male doctor, I said, Can I count that as a hot date? To a Muslim woman in her fifties who said, on extracting herself, That's quite normal. I wanted so much to reply, It may be for you, love, but that ain't normal for me. Honestly, all these people who went in there. Ironically, it was only the men I had sex with who didn't. One of the many white-coated ones sent me for checks to see if I had lymphogranuloma venereum, or LGV, one of the more aggressive types of chlamydia, she explained with a chilly smile. Did I detect a hint of, serves you right, you filthy old dog, about her expression? She was another who, after bloods and mouth and throat swabs, wanted an anal swab too. I assumed that, like all the others who had needed the same sample, she would send me off to the toilet with a plastic file and a cotton-tipped wand. Oh no, not this one. She instructed me to get onto the bed, and she was in there herself in a trice, twirling away like a seasoned majorette. The next time I saw her she said, 
Your stools are back from the lab. I had an image of her opening a leaky envelope to find the remnants of something squidgy. Your results, she said, lips tight, as if she could read my infantile mind. Amid all this probing and slips of the tongue, such as not to be poo-pooed, and it's a bit of a bummer, and if the shit hits the fan, I dug my scales out of the bathroom cupboard and weighed myself. Instead of the eighty-four kilograms I expected to see, the reading was seventy-one kilos. I had lost more than ten percent of my own body weight. Oh, fuck. This was now officially terrifying. Don't think about bowel cancer or stomach cancer. Whatever you do, don't think about cancer at all. Just banish that thought. The word not to let into your mind is cancer. Yes, cancer. Delete it. Forget it. If there's definitely one thing I'm not going to think about, even for a minute, even for a second, it's cancer. I had a lovely long Skype call with Oliver. I didn't mention the C word. I didn't want him to have even a tenth of the level of anxiety I was suffering. We laughed a lot. It was sweet and tender and very caring. I reminded him of some of our past triumphs and horrors, too. It struck me how unfair it would be to be told my time is up, just as he and I were engineering some kind of rapprochement. Unfair at any time, of course. There was nothing I could do but wait and keep providing blood, spit, and shit when asked. But no seaman. I was surprised nobody was requesting that. The medics were welcome to it. All they had to do was ask. So many others had. My GP asked how many sexual partners I'd had over the last three months. I was flummoxed by the question, and wanted to balance honesty with modesty. Too few would indicate how pathetic I was. Too many? What a strumpet. I guessed twenty-five. When I got home, I checked. It was twenty-six. I ticked the box for accuracy, but whether she judged me boorish or whorish, who knows? And how did I judge myself? If these past few months of carnal cavortings were to be my swan song, did I regret it? Not at all. Although it had been a chaotic rag-bag, more scrappiness than happiness, more duty than beauty, horny fun frequently, but even the less than great had been above the line of disgust, it had been a final flare of vitality, vim, and virility, a burst of bonking, a spurt of spontaneity, and a tussle of muscle. But now a time of reflection was welcome, a period of calm without the interrupting king of multiple apps. There was a crop of men, though, who had progressed through the minefield of grinder, scruff, and so on, into the inner circle of WhatsApp. They all had access to me, and the ability to stir my emotions. Q. Jeremy Jeremy and I had had some chats online. He was of Iranian descent, but despite his air of alien glamour, he was an innocent young man and had a certain vulnerability. His pics showed the most amazing eyes I think I'd ever seen, gazing up through his dark fringe like an exotic creature peeping through forest branches. He said they changed colour from green to grey. Could that be true? Jeremy wanted to see a video of me fucking someone, so I sent one about a minute of me servicing Furcan. This was now something I did without thinking much about it, the filming and the sending. Jeremy was fascinated by it, but he had endless questions. When was it? Who was it? How did it feel? What was the other guy saying? Where did it take place? Did I enjoy it? Did he enjoy it? That dark part, was it shadow or what? And could I send some more? 
Jeremy wasn't reticent to share aspects of his life. He had severe injuries after a road accident, wasn't out to his strict and dysfunctional family, wasn't even sure if he could ever meet me. He requested dick pics, but couldn't send any, as he didn't have enough memory on his phone. He'd lost my previous messages. He asked if we could move to a video call. Not really, as I was at work with large windows overlooking other business premises. I may be an exhibitionist, but I'd hate to impose my cavorting on unsuspecting office workers. But he was persistent. Although he couldn't reciprocate because of some problem with his phone. Yeah, right. If we could FaceTime, he'd hear me, but wouldn't be able to respond, because his brothers were around. Lies. All lies. Probably. But I decided to pretend I believed him, and went to the windowless kitchen to make contact. I undressed to give him a show, flattered, of course. I could speak, but he typed his replies. Spit on your cock, came the message. I did. I gave him the display he wanted. Sometimes I got the encouragement, cool, and sometimes hot. Not much else. I came for him, filming and talking all the time. He seemed pleased with our meeting. I felt hollow and mildly ashamed. What a shallow and worthless ten minutes. For me. For him, apparently, it had had some meaning. I gave the naked yoga and the naked swim and the naked parties a miss. Well, there's nowhere to hide if you're bollock naked and at number seven on the Bristol stool chart. This listless lull in activity, the inability to control my bowels during the night, resulting in daily changes of shitty sheets and days off work, prompted a lot of retrospective musing and end-of-life assessment. If I was about to receive the fatal diagnosis, how did I judge my time on earth? What would be said at my funeral? This period coincided with the 97th anniversary of my mother's birth and the 16th of her death, two days short of becoming 81. Her spirit was indomitable, but her cancer-hosting body let her down, and she became atypically frail. Was she ready to die? I think so. Reconciled, I believe. But I wish we'd been able to acknowledge it aloud, broach the subject, and say all those other things. But that would have necessitated a total character transformation. Her whole life was spent not saying things aloud, of stiff upper lip, and make-do and mend, and sewing sheets side to the middle, and least said soonest mended. Of what would the neighbours think? It's what I've fought against all my life, to be able to say and specify, talk, discuss, and engage. When I wore a teeny-tiny blue enamel badge in the wide lapel of my brown corduroy jacket, it was 1975, with the letters C-H-E, Mum asked what they stood for. Campaign for homosexual equality, I said. She gasped. But you don't want everyone to know, do you? Authenticity and integrity. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but I know in head and heart which is right for me. I've worked hard to claim these permissions by rejecting Mum and Dad's attitudes. But they came to adulthood in the crisis of the Second World War. My teenage years were the permissive sixties. Although she may not have understood or approved of the choices I made, she never tried to dissuade me from my own path. She and Dad supported my decisions as much as they felt they could. They changed, too, because of having me as their son. I took my now traditional boat trip up the Thames from Westminster to Kew Gardens to mark Mum's death and honour her life. I sat in the weak sunshine, remembering all the things she gave me and still does. 
Often one of her familiar phrases will be in my mind, or on my lips, expressed in her bright, optimistic tones, her tigger-like buoyancy keeping Dad's Eorian gloom afloat. Just. It must have been exhausting for her. I was caught somewhere between the two, upbeat that I'd get through this medical mystery, and fatalistic that of course it was my turn to face the fact of my own mortality. I'd been intending to stop work this year and travel. That chance looked as if it had now slipped away. And the courage, too. I'd even been allowing myself to speculate that all this wild sexual hedonism had brought me to a point of confessing that maybe, just maybe, I could entertain the thought of another relationship. Angelo and Jalil and Kyle had risen out of the mass of heaving flesh to touch me in a different way. Could my, could my, whisper it, heart, actually be available for, go on, say it, love? I doubted that. Well, none of this speculation about possible outcomes was relevant if I was about to be told there was no long-term future for me. When you've been bracing yourself for the news that you have bowel cancer, there is nothing quite so wonderful as the news that you don't. I don't have bowel cancer, I wanted to tell family, friends, and even strangers in Sainsbury's and on the tube. I don't. I really don't. No cancer at all. My GP rang to tell me there was evidence of Giardia, a microscopic parasite that had been ruled out of the gut inquiries earlier, seems it had been tucked away, high in the upper intestine. She made it sound like a secret attic apartment. She said it could be contracted in various ways, even from a swimming pool. Although the NHS info online also referred to certain sexual activity which can cause small particles of poo to get into the mouth. I was miffed to see the NHS website use poo and fart. Really? Not stools or faecal matter? and flatulence or wind. This was truly scraping the bottom of the barrel. Oh, sorry. Well, of course, I said, I have been swimming a lot recently. Four tablets of tinidazole was all the treatment I needed, and quickly saw my Bristol score drop to a very respectable five and four. Firm lumpy snakes. Oh, joy! I then discovered that the battery in my bathroom scales was faulty, I replaced it and found I had lost not fourteen kilos, but four. Yes, well, that made sense, given all the ballast I'd been jettisoning. A few days after the antibiotics kicked in, I felt something unfamiliar in my pants. It was an erection. I'd forgotten about those. Well, hello, boys. Daddy's back. I kept the apps off my phone for, oh, several days, maybe even a couple of weeks, but then they seemed to have been downloaded again. Perhaps I was hacked. I had my health back and my joie de vivre. I went to the ballet, the opera, the theatre, and saw a lot of friends. I don't have bowel cancer, I would tell them to their baffled amusement. I went to a Eurovision party, the ultimate life-affirming celebration of quality and creative genius. And I allowed sex to rear its not-so-ugly head again. Of course I did. There was a young man called Will. You know, I should write limericks about each of my lads. 
although some would be easier than others. Um, Clyde, wide pride cried. Lucky, mucky, plucky, fucky. Jalil, appeal, feel, squeal. But Angelo, mm, the cadence is all wrong. But then wasn't that precisely the issue with him? We were out of sync, bouncing to a different beat. Anyway, Will. Will Waters. I'd missed a lot of calls from him over a couple of days, including one I'd spotted during the Eurovision party. Well, I wasn't going to let him interrupt the cultural highlight of the year, but now I was open to below-the-belt action, so I reconnected. Will Waters, in case you've forgotten and who can blame you, was the clean-cut young man in his mid-twenties with a public school look. He had hair that was ripe for ruffling, and lips designed for dirty words and dirtier deeds. Behind the bike sheds. His pics were of him with other lads on holiday or in soccer kit. Strange how sexy muddy knees can look. Under normal conditions I'd have leapt at Will, but he couldn't a com, and I had Nathan sleeping on my sofa for a couple of weeks, between quitting one flat and moving to a new one. I'd semi-hoped that when given the option of sofa or bed share, Nathan would opt for co-cuddles, but I was relieved that he had more maturity than I did, and kept our naked bodies in adjacent rooms. Our single sex date, with re-grouting, although crucial to my own rehabilitation, had proved less significant than the deep and supportive love of our friendship. So Will and I were talking in bed. Well, hang on, each in our own bed and talking via WhatsApp. He apologised for disappearing before, and I forgave him. I felt like giving him a detention and demoting him to the subs bench for the next match. I explained to him that Nathan was in the other room, so my responses would need to be discreet. <laughs> Me, discreet, whoever would have thought. He suggested we move from screen words to FaceTime. Out of vanity, I removed my specs. Look at you, he said. Yes, but not in close-up. Look at you, he said it again and again. It could have signified many things, but I chose to take it as a compliment. I echoed, and look at you, which I did, but he was in soft focus. Will was full of acclaim and hunger for me. I was deeply gratified, having only recently been toying with the idea of what music I want at my funeral. Suavecia al vento from Così Fan Tutte, Lean on Me by Bill Withers, Che Faro from Gluck's Orfeo et Euridice, Something, Anything by Dolly Parton, the slow movement from Mozart's clarinet concerto in A major, K622, and Somewhere Over the Rainbow, obviously, sung either by my mother or Judy Garland. Since you ask. Thank you. Look at you, said Will Waters. You're so sexy. Why are you so sexy? Um, well, why are you so sexy? I defy you to come up with a suitably honest but humble retort, one that hits the right note. Uh, well, um, I'm not sure, was the best I could come up with. But why? The polite and friendly had inevitably moved on, moved down, to the next level. Our communication wasn't great, especially as I was squinting and whispering. So when Will begged me to show him something, guess what? I said, yes, darling but then couldn't be sure if he said, "'Oh, you called me darling,' or "'Ugh, you called me darling.' But the connection was sufficient for us to film ourselves wanking and share simultaneous orgasms. In fact, I was becoming quite adept at this, 
handy, you might say, and was considering adding it to the transferable skills section of my CV. After promises to meet up soon, we'll cut the call. So, will we or will we not? My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a Protocol production. Music